I was raised in Philadelphia. So, you know, when you're raised in Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin is everywhere. I mean, you know, all the class trips, the Franklin Institute, the Liberty, I mean, everything was, was Benjamin Franklin. This, this uh, idea of the anti-German is the first time I've, I've heard of it. They never told us this when we were in elementary school in Philadelphia. But um, how did each one view religion and, and freedom of religion? Both of them were very, I mean, religion was incredibly important, of course, in America back then. You had um, the great, the so-called Great Awakening happened right in the middle of, of Franklin's life. And that was a revival among born-again Christians, creating, sort of creating evangelicalism out of what been America had been divided, the United States had been divided. You had uh, Anglicans living in one part, mostly in the South, and you had um, uh, Puritans and Congregationalists living in the North, and Baptists, and and suddenly there was this evangelical revival that sort of blurred the lines, and you either were a born again Christian or not, a new light or an old light, as it were, and that happened right smack dab in the heart of. Of Franklin's life in Philadelphia. Um, and um, he got to know some of the big evangelical leaders like George Whitefield, and Whitefield would stay at his home. But he, um, so he was very interested in religion, as was Washington, who in younger life, as he was trying to crawl himself, Washington was not part of the first families of Virginia. He had to make his way. He was the first son of the second wife of a of a planter who was not at the not at the top league, but had a nice plantation. But Washington never thought he was going to inherit anything, and he thought he had to work for a living. That's why he went off to the frontier as a surveyor to acquire land on the frontier. And then it turned out that all of his older brothers died, and he ended up inheriting the plantation. And then, even more importantly, marrying the richest widow. He was very handsome, marrying the richest richest widow in uh, Virginia, which brought untold wealth to him. Um, and he was also a a resourceful planner who had the good sense to shift from tobacco to to grain, um, and therefore make his way financially. Um, he had, when he was trying to make his way, he would serve as on the vestry for his local uh, Anglican church. So he was connected up with religion. Both of them were very interested in religion, and both of them rejected Christianity in the sense that they thought Christianity offered great moral teachings. And at one point, Washington, uh, Franklin famously advised his, his the world, but basically a to his son, but it was meant for wider distribution, general distribution is for morality, imitate um, Jesus and Socrates. And that would be classic, yeah, to him. Uh, Jesus he viewed as a great moral teacher, but not the son of God. And Washington was the same way. He thought, he, he studied it less, but he thought Washington, uh, uh, Jesus offered good moral teaching, but both of them would look to Old Testament prophets. Both of them knew their Bible, and both of them looked to what they would call Old Testament or Jewish um, teachings. They would look to the, the the Jewish prophets, the prophets of Israel, uh, uh, which and 
those would be as inspirational to them as anything in what they call the New Testament. Both of them, both of them deeply, deeply believed in providence. Both of them deeply believed in God. They weren't deists. They would be better categorized as providential um, theist. They believed in providence. They believed in God. You might call them Unitarians in the sense that they didn't believe in in, in, in three gods. Um, so they would. Tell, they were both. Um, Franklin got along very well with Joseph Priestley, who was basically the founder of modern Unitarianism. They became very, very close friends, both in England, they were very close, and then over when uh, Priestley moved to the New World. Um, They both believed that the United States was providentially created by God as something new under the sun. Um, they both had experiences in their lifetime, which they viewed as God's providence protecting them. Washington famously, you know, in battle, bullet holes in his coats and him uninjured. Um, time and time again, he was miraculously saved in battle that nobody could figure out how. And this would go all the way back to the French and Indian War. So he thought he was called for a purpose. Franklin, I suppose, believed the same way. They certainly believed that uh, both the Success in the revolution and the success of the Constitution were a miracle, a divine miracle. Um, So in that sense, they were providential theists. But that's why both of them would happily look to to Jews, be as open and as welcoming to Jews as they were to Christians, because they weren't Christians in the normal sense. Washington famously... um, he stopped going to church. He went to church before the revolution. Uh, he was even, uh, but that was probably even then more of a social uh, activity. Um, but then during the revolution, he had his status as commander in chief. He didn't need for any social compromises. And so he stopped going to church. Um, he dropped off the vestry back home in Virginia. And then when the, um, Revolution came when the when he became president. He believed deeply in the much more so than Franklin that um, in civil religion and that we needed um, that it was good for society to um, be involved with religion. He thought there were tremendous uh, social benefits and public benefits in a civil religion. So he went to church while he was president. But because of his integrity, he always left before communion because he could not take, he did not believe he could take communion, um, which is the body and blood of Christ. And so his wife would stay and he would leave uh, church uh, before communion. So they were very, they took their religion very seriously. Um, Franklin had close ties with the clergy. As I said, uh, George Whitfield, the, the um, evangelical leader, would stay with them and they were very close friends. He had um, both of them um, um, famously, Washington, after he is elected as president of the Constitutional Convention, which was a major step. And Franklin did not go. The only day of the Constitutional Convention that Franklin missed was the day of electing the president, so there wouldn't be any conflict between him and Washington. Washington was elected as president of the the Constitutional uh, uh, Convention. And on a, on a Friday, the following Sunday, he went to Catholic Mass. He chose to go as a public figure 
he didn't have Catholic churches in, in Virginia or in most states. You couldn't be a Catholic legally. But Pennsylvania, being a tolerant place, being the, you know, Philadelphia, the child, uh, William Penns, would naturally have a Catholic church. And he went to a Catholic church and um, alone. And, oh, oh, no, with another delegate who was Catholic. And what he was trying to do, Washington was not a great speaker. He was an actor. In fact, John Adams, his vice president, who never got along with anybody, um, just rolled his eyes one time and said that Washington was the greatest political actor he ever saw. Uh, meant that both positive and negatively. But he, he, he would show things by what he did. And so he went to a Catholic church to show that this constitution that we're drafting, this is for all people. Back then, Catholics were a very, very discreet and insular and uh, uh, minority who had enormous prejudice against them. Uh, no mass had ever legally been said in the state of Massachusetts, for example, by that time. And yet he chose to publicly go to a Catholic church to show what we're doing is going to have freedom of religion. We are going to be a republic open to Catholics as well as Protestants. That was a very, very significant and important um, political act. And um, Washington deserves, you know, you can attack him for this and you can attack him for that, but he deserves enormous credit for, for using his visible public prestige. It was similar to after he becomes president, he receives and responds to the letter from in Rhode Island. It's the same sort of thing, showing we're all part of our country. What was special about that visit to the Turo Synagogue and the famous letter that he wrote after that visit? What was was unique about that? I think you've spelled it out previously. He does. Um, The Jewish synagogue in, in, um, in Newport, Rhode Island, which I've had the pleasure of visiting, and I do recommend anybody to going there to visit. Rhode Island was the only state, it had been the only colony with true freedom of religion. Now, in some states like Pennsylvania, um, it was open to all Christians. Maryland was the same way. But Rhode Island was true freedom of religion. And so you could even be an atheist there, but you could also be Jewish. And so it attracted a large, um, it attracted a significant, I shouldn't say large, um, but a significant Jewish population. And there was the first synagogue. Now, Rhode Island does not join the Union right away, but there's a tradition that when states joined the Union, they would um, acknowledge the president. And so the uh, Jewish congregation in um, Rhode Island sent a um, a letter of congratulations to George Washington, and Washington responded uh, very generously and intentionally with a public letter, not a private letter, the public letter which says that the government of the United States, like the governor of Rhode Island, gives no bigotry and no sanction no persecution and no assistance. Now that mimics what the sort of colony that Roger Williams had originally proposed, a place where Jews or Catholics or even atheists could come and would two things, 
both be free to practice their religion and not compelled to pay for the support of any other religion. Those were the two aspects of religious liberty that were absent in other colonies. At that same time, when Washington wrote that letter, Massachusetts, Connecticut, their two neighboring states, everyone had to pay. The government paid for the support of ministers and churches of their favored religion. In, that, in those cases, the Congregational Church, the old Puritan Church. Those were state-supported in the two neighboring states at that time. That had not been stopped by the First Amendment, because the First Amendment, as understood then and as approved, said that the federal government will not limit religious freedom or support any church, but it left its, its limited to Congress. So the states were free to establish religion. And so there they were, the two neighboring states to Rhode Island. Rhode Island standing out as distinct for from the very beginning, from the early 1600s under Roger Williams, standing for that sort of toleration in Washington, extending to the Jews of Rhode Island, that reaffirming that, that was the fundamental nature of the American Republic. Now, everyone knew Franklin always believed that. Um, but Franklin, by that time, was gone or died in that year. Um, Washington was the president. And that reconfirmation to not a Catholic in that case, but to a Jewish congregation, after his earlier outreach to Catholics, just showed what sort of nation he wanted America to become. What, what What is the forged Franklin prophecy? What was behind that? And how, how was it clearly counter to Franklin's attitudes towards the Jewish people? Well, that was a totally created, um, um, had nothing whatsoever to do uh, with Franklin. Um, in, I believe it was the 1930s when it was trumped up and ascribed to Franklin. And it was part of the anti-Semitism that was rampant at that period that, of course, was, I mean, manifested most notoriously in, in Germany. But in America, it was manifest as well by Father Cochran and others. And, of course, by all the Jewish sympathizers like um, Charles Lindbergh. And, um, uh, Franklin, tying him to something like that would give it credence, but it has absolutely, totally debunked. It has absolutely no connection whatsoever with Franklin. Indeed, if you go back to Benjamin Franklin, he had Spinoza's books on his, in his library. And, you know, I don't think Washington could make it. Washington liked to read, but he liked to read things like Don Quixote. Um, and he liked to go to plays. Uh, Franklin, uh, like Jefferson, had Spinoza's books and, and found Spinoza, you know, an inspiring. I mean, Spinoza was indeed a um, model. And indeed, um, Franklin's view of religion, Franklin's religious writings are then just shortly after his, um, uh, his death picked up in Eastern Europe. 
um, by uh, uh, Jews there in a in a, a very influential piece of work that is based on it. It's called the Book of Spiritual Accounting, which is by Eastern European um, leading Eastern Eastern European uh, uh, rabbi, and it's based on Franklin's autobiography. So the links between um, even from the even while Franklin was still alive, and he would go over to places like London, lived a significant part of his life in London. Um, he was very close with the Jewish community there, and he was viewed. I guess you'd call him he viewed as sort of a mensch, if you if I can use a, a term like that, if that can be applied. Uncle, Uncle Ben, Uncle Ben. Yeah. That's just sort of what he was viewed as. Washington, Washington was admired by, uh, by Jews, of course. But Franklin was viewed as sort of a wise teacher. It, it just in conclusion, um, what's the message that you try to give to young people today? Very briefly, the message to young people about studying and looking at American history today. We are all, people are people. And really for as long back, as long back, that would be in the, in the times of ancient Judea, um, to, um, to before that in other countries, people are the same, people are the people. Uh, and young people today somehow think that history doesn't matter because we're so different. Maybe it's because they have the internet. Maybe it's because they have cell phones. Maybe it's because of technology. You've, you've been, speak, you've been speaking to my children, right? You've been speaking yeah, to that's, That somehow nothing Cicero is going to tell us or Moses is going to tell us or Franklin is going to tell us matters because our world is different than their world. But it's not. People are people. And if you get back and you study these people, a wise person in ancient Israel or a wise person in Greece or a wise person in, in um, China or a wise person in colonial America is still a wise person. And the types of decisions they have to make are really not fundamentally different. And they can, they can teach you bigotry or they can teach you tolerance. They can teach you reverence for for nature and for God and for for purpose and give meaning to your life, or they can teach you how um, um, they can provide models of of, of horror and that that destroy us all and destroy themselves and destroy each other. And so, since people are the same and really are no wiser than we've ever been. Oh, sure, we can access information differently on the web, but it's amazing when you study a person like a Franklin or like a, um, or um, even an ancient, how much knowledge they really had accumulated and how they could apply it. So history is the story of people. And we can learn from Franklin and Washington how to be tolerant, we can learn aspects of them that aren't. I mean, I'm often asked, well, what do you think about pulling down Washington statue? Right. And I reply to that. I say, you know, nobody belongs in a statue. One thing I learned from religion is 
We're all sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. Look at David. Look at, you know, David did some horrible things with Bathsheba and Bathsheba's husband. And yet that child, the child of that, you know, very, very sinful union was Solomon, the next king. And so we can, we, um, we can take those, um, we can, if you put somebody on a pedestal, though, you can always find some reason to tear it down. That's why I like books and I like museums, because with museums and with books, and that's where statues belong, you can contextualize these people. And we can learn, actually, from Washington's flaws, as well as we can learn from his the elements of his greatness. We can learn from Franklin's flaws, flaws. And we can learn from his elements of greatness. Indeed, if you, one of the great things about Franklin is he learned from his own mistakes. He learned to become more tolerant. Um, he wasn't originally an abolitionist. He actually, he never treated, I mean, I don't know how you treat him. He didn't treat him like Washington treated him. <laughs> Washington was, could be a very cruel a master. Franklin had actually had some slaves when he was um, young. And he rejected that and became an abolitionist. We can learn from people. Um, and that's why reading history and museums, contextualizing history, tells us so much more than putting them up on a pedestal. Thank you very, very much, Professor Larson. This has been fascinating, and we appreciate your giving up your, your time. Thank you very, very much. Well, thank you for having me on. And thank all your um, all you're doing to keep history alive. Um, throughout the world and in, in Israel. And I hope this reaches out to your home um, base of Philadelphia. I hope so, The too. city of brotherly love. I hope so, too.